This week on Conversations of Inspiration, I'm speaking to Tamara Lohan, MBE, founder and CTO of Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Tamara co-founded her business in 2002 with her husband, James, starting out as a coffee table guidebook for discerning travellers. With a huge success in book sales, Mr. and Mrs. Smith swiftly moved into becoming an online booking system, curating the best hotels from around the world. They now have offices in London, New York, LA and Singapore, and now have more than 1.5 million members worldwide. I had the complete pleasure of visiting Tamara in her West London office, where we spoke about the early days of building Mr. and Mrs. Smith, what it's like being a female tech founder, and why curation is vital for future-proofing business. And wait till you hear her letter to her younger self. It was so honest and moving. You might need a tissue at the ready. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table. And since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co., I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. So thank you so much for meeting me here today and being a guest on this podcast, Tamara. It's lovely to see you and your gorgeous smile. I've always loved Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I remember buying your wonderful book. It must have been around 2005-ish or... 2003. 2003. The first book came out, September 2003. So I, I remember when setting up Not in the High Street, I had absolutely no money, but I used to flick through your book dreaming of that one day holiday that I might take if the business was successful and I always thought the name was genius and admired this brand that you were building and now I fast forward to today and you're on the board of Not on the High Street. Um, Which I love. Yeah well it's (laughs) such a pleasure to see you here today and we've met a few times but we've never had the absolute time to actually go into your story and I know it's going to inspire so many people in this community. So I just wanted to kick off and start by asking you if you could share your story. And is it true that Mr. and Mrs. Smith was founded from a disastrous first date with your husband? My husband and I, well, we were dating back then. And I want you to remember that because that's important for the story. (laughs) We were dating. He was very busy. I was very busy. I'd actually come out of corporate life in marketing, the data side of marketing, and had joined my mother in her business. She ran a dating agency. She's a classic entrepreneur, started a dating agency for farmers, actually, in the countryside about 35 years ago. And so I was running the business with her and Jay. James had a members bar and club south of the river in in Clapham. He was very busy, had an events company as well. But as busy people, we always wanted to just get out of London for the weekends. And we would canvas opinion from our friends. We'd trawl the magazines, the newspapers. And in those days, what you do is ring up the hotel and get the brochure through the post. 
So our poor postman used to deliver so many brochures. And on one particular weekend away, we got this brochure through the post and it looked beautiful. On Friday, we booked it. On Friday, we drove off, drove down this lovely drive, beautiful manor house, went into reception. And we were kind of sidelined from reception into this tiny little room. And and the lady who had come out from behind the reception desk proceeded to weigh us. in front of each other and uh, so that's why you need to remember we were dating and that is not a good way to start a romantic weekend away together Uh, so mortally embarrassed (laughs) we then went up to the room and it was and this had happened to us on several weekends we were kind of building up to this you know we got into the room and the room was just very shabby average swirly patterns all over the ceiling the carpet the curtains chintz chintz everywhere hair dryers stuck to the wall and nowhere near a mirror corby trouser press in prime position you know so proud of the corby trouser press it was the days before even duvet so there were scratchy blankets and oh and i think james just saw the disappointment all over my face when we walked into the bedroom and so he said okay let's let's fix this let's go down and have a, a lovely dinner so I dressed up we went down to dinner and we quickly realized that everybody else in in the restaurant was in bathrobes that it was a calorie controlled menu <laughs> and there was no alcohol and for a kind of young couple on date weekend that, that's yeah. just no good no um, not good so we escaped we esca- literally got through reception trying to sneak past without them seeing and and fled to the pub and we sat there and over the course of the evening we mapped out what it was that we wanted from a guidebook uh and from a hotel really and it was all about it, you know we we got really annoyed by stars diamonds and rosettes and we said we don't want those ratings they don't mean anything i mean there were so many guides luxury hotels this and small luxury hotels that and uh, they all put kind of stars in but we didn't know what the stars actually meant and it mm-hmm. didn't mean anything in terms of your experience of the mm-hmm. hotel so we wanted to know things like you know was there a, uh was it good Egyptian cotton thread count on the sheets could you could you fit two in the bath was the shower going to get us wet could the barman mix us a perfect martini all the things that make up your true experience of a hotel and so we that was the the first guidebook as it were on a palm pilot I wrote it down that will date it um we sat there and wrote all of this out and so that was the start of Mr and Mrs Smith but as I said, you know, we were very busy and we had our own businesses. So our idea was to take the idea to the publishing houses uh, in London, let them do all the hard work, of course, and then take a royalty every time a book was published. And, you know, we'd go back to our day jobs. Yes. Uh, but what happened was when we when we took the idea to the publishing houses, they all turned us down. And at that point, we started thinking, oh, maybe we should just do this ourselves so we ended up self-publishing. Which it mustn't have been a thing then. No, I don't, I don't know very many people who did. No, you normally go with a publisher. And there was a very good reason for that as well, because, which we found out subsequently. Of course, um, we needed distribution. And very naively, we thought we could ring up Waterstones, you know, pitch to them and go, how many do you want? Send and of course, some boxes. Exactly. They, but it doesn't work like that. All the distribution houses are owned by the publishing houses. And so 
we couldn't find distribution because, you know, the publishers had already turned us down. So we had to literally scour the country and found the last remaining independent distribution house in the UK. And they said no as well. <laughs> I remember the first meeting we went in, they said, I'm really sorry, we can't take you on because we only take on publishers with two books. And we were, we thought, well, you know, let's make the first book a success first and then we'll do two books. Um, so not take, again, not taking no for an answer. James said, let, let us come and pitch to your board. And they kindly let us go in and, and pitch to the board a few days later. And, and the board gave us a chance. You know, we, were, we went in there and they were, I mean, it was in front of a, a, a group of men. They must have all been about a hundred years old and um and they sat there kind of cross-armed looking at us going you know tell us you know tell us something we don't know already but I think it was the excitement that we brought to it and uh James had had a background in PR in fact it was the only proper job that he'd ever had was in PR and um and so he understood how that worked and he he started saying things like we know we're going to be working with the times and the Guardian." and he kind of threw all this out I was looking at him going oh yes <laughs> have you okay. actually picked up the phone yet <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know we were quite well connected I think in those days because because of the members bar and club you know we'd worked with journalists before to promote those businesses Businesses. And so we did have connections. Um, and anyway, they perked up, uh, these all, all these centenarians, and uh, they gave us a shot. And I'll never forget the day we, we walked out of uh, the board meeting and I turned around to the chairman and said, how many do you think will sell? And as, bear in mind, we had remortgaged the house uh, we'd begged, borrowed, not stolen, uh, <laughs> begged, borrowed from friends and family to, to get the first print run. And our first print run break even was 15,000, which we had put money down on. Um, and he turned, uh, the chairman turned around and said, oh, yeah, I think you'll sell about 5,000. Oh, no. And I said, what, a month? <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> he said, no, 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 over the course of the, of the life of the book. Yeah. And... I, I turned around to James and said, you know, you realise that if that happens, we're moving back in with my mum. And he said, that's never going to happen. <laughs> the look of, like, dismay on his face. Speed dialing Move the time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so anyway, so we, we got our, we self-published, we got the distribution in place. Waterstones did take an order. September 2003, the book was on the shelf and we had to reprint and we sold uh, over 20,000 copies before Christmas. Wow. It was it was great. Yeah. Oh, if not only just to prove the chairman wrong. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, they were very happy. They were very happy. I bet and you got the oh. second second deal, huh? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And and you touched on the fact that your mum was an entrepreneur. Mm. I mean, you know, really back in the day, and both she, of my parents were. Were they? Yes. Were they the ones that inspired you to start up a business? I mean, you and your husband obviously work incredibly hard, but that ethic of working hard was that do you think that you were brought up with that all around you yes I mean when I when I was young I saw my mother working extremely hard it was that those formative years okay especially my teenage years when she was ramping up the business uh, and I'd help her at weekends and we'd go through all the files were sitting of, of all the people kind of waiting for dates would be sitting paper files in the living room um, and she Why? would ask me to go it was the very early days of a database right yeah and she would say okay I need a man in his 50s in Shropshire who plays tennis and I would rifle through the 
know, I would rifle through these paper things and uh, find, pick out the men, and that, those would go off as potential introductions. And but I saw her working evenings, um, and and that that work ethic has really stayed with me. Tell me about those early days, because I know the community sometimes share back with me that they love to hear just those early, informative, embryonic days of when the book turned into something else. And and how did you navigate those first mm. months? So I think we really stuck to what we wanted. And especially, we, I think we realised that the publishing industry was, was very sleepy. And so all the things that they were pushing back on us, I think we felt had something special and worth fighting for. I'll give you little examples, um, which, you know, will seem silly now. But they told us that we couldn't print on offset paper. They called it blotting paper. Mm-hmm. Um, that because we were a luxury product, we had to print on gloss. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we look back now, everything went very organic and, yeah. and, and kind of the rougher papers. But they, they would just, you can't do that. And the second thing was the kind of look and feel of the book. We wanted it to be a guide, but we wanted it to be inspirational, not like these other books that had just put in a stock, tiny photo of a hotel mm-hmm. in them mm-hmm. with a little bit of writing that didn't really mean anything. And so we wanted to send the photographer to every single hotel. Again, the publisher said, you can't do that. That will blow the budget. It was little things like mm-hmm. that. So mm-hmm. sticking to our guns, I think, got us and, and, take, and really caring about the details got us to a position where we had a product that really stood out. And then, yeah, so it, it was always supposed to be a hobby business because, as I said, you know, we had our own full-time careers. Full-time careers. And, and so we did it in the evenings and James had a, a vintage car that <laughs> needed running every evening. So in the evenings, we'd get in the car and just drive it around London so that the battery didn't die. And in the car, we would plan and talk about Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And, that, you know, that's where we'd do our work. And uh, so it took up every... It was our hobby. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was fantastic because we took a month off work and travelled the length and breadth of Britain to find the hotels for the first book. So it was a lovely hobby business. But at a certain point, it got to the stage where it, it needed more of us and it, it was really taking off, you know, that it had captured a, a moment in time. I think that on two sides, we, we helped bring these hotels to, you know, into the frame for people. Nobody else were champ- was championing these tiny boutique mm. hotels that existed out there. But at the same time, the boutique hotel movement had started. Yeah. And so we kind of pushed and rode that wave and it, it, it all got very exciting. And then, of course, in 2005, everything was going digital mm-hmm. and we knew we needed to transform the business and, and, and move along with that as well. Uh, and so that's what we did. In, in September 2005, we started the online bookable website. And, and obviously the, the business is very different today, although we've just gone back into print. I'm going to go on to that. It's interesting. So you took it online because we can say that today, can't we? We just took it online. Um, (laughs) But, you know, in those days, seeing we started in April 2006, not on the high street. I remember taking things online was not just, you know, you weren't going on to Squarespace and creating something or anything like that. So tell me, were you daunted by that prospect? It wasn't so much daunting as... You know, we were just making it up as we went along because there weren't many people like us out there. 
I mean, yes, there was. Lastminute.com had really kind of forged the way with online bookings, but we were very different and we wanted to bring all the good things from publishing, you know, lovely content, beautiful imagery. We wanted to bring that to the website as well. And in those days, that was very difficult because, you know, Web (laughs) 1.0 was not pretty. It really wasn't pretty. It really wasn't, no. No. And, of course, we didn't know what we were doing with the bookings side of things. And so that bit we outsourced and plugged in a third-party booking engine. It wasn't until 2008 that we, we built our own. We don't have long enough for us to delve into some of the similarities, but it's Mm. as you speak, it's so incredible when I think about in April 2006 at Notton High Street, we had to ask our photographer friend for stop images just that she had over the years so that we could use something. Or when Mm. we spoke to our small businesses, which I'm sure when you spoke to your boutiques and asked them to send their photographs in, oh oh my goodness, people weren't used to lifestyle photography or giving that to the customer online you know it was still the days of the magazine you know that was actually where you would see beautiful photographs or in a lovely coffee table book well with the hotels they had kind of stock photography that they'd used for their brochures but often it wasn't you know that's great to use and so we did send a photographer around to every hotel and we were lucky we were a smaller collection than not on the high street wanted to be yeah well there are only 35 hotels in the first book right so we did send a photographer to every single one we wanted to bring the experience to it so we were the first ones ever in the travel industry to photograph unmade beds Mm. And and some of the hotels pushed back really hard on it, saying, I don't want an unmade bed. And now, of course, you know, you want that yeah. real yeah. feel of the experience yeah. that actually somebody's been there and yeah. been up to mischief. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and so, it, you know, it was tricky to get what we what we wanted. Oh, so you're the CTO, the chief technical officer at Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And I've heard you say you're the one that fixes the TV while your husband chooses the (laughs) wallpaper. Yes. So it sounds like you've got quite a left side of the brain, technical, analytical. I know you studied at Oxford. So did you naturally move into this CTO role? Because you were digital, weren't you, in a career before? And then you've got, then you went into online. Did you imagine yourself in this world? Absolutely not. And, you know, when I left Oxford, there was no hint that this was round the corner. I mean, I'd I'd handwritten all my essays, exams. I hadn't used a computer for in in all my time there. And there also wasn't coming out of Oxford at that time. There wasn't a, uh, oh, you could be an entrepreneur. Mm. You were encouraged to go into the city. And so that was kind of the thing to do. I knew that I didn't want to do that but I didn't know what I wanted to do either. I recently spoke to Fequels on this podcast who are all about shining a light on women in tech. Um, she had actually written a book on it. It's Danielle. Yes, yeah, and, it's, and it's definitely an area of business that we have to have more women mm. in. From your experience, and obviously being a female CTO and now have been doing this for a good chunk of your, your life, what advice would you give to female tech founders or just women who want to be more empowered to deal with tech, design Mm. tech in their business. 
it would be great to hear your experience. I think for me, because I didn't do an engineering degree and I came to it much later in life through marketing, but always the database side of marketing, it was always the kind of number crunching. If it's something that interests you, just don't th- don't fear that it's a black box that you're never going to understand. It's never as difficult as you know you think. And once you get stuck in, and if your mind works that way, tech is is all about problem solving and I actually feel that you know women have are very good at problem solving and so there should be naturally this should be the industry we spend 99% of our lives problem solving be it at home our families our world and that's what technology is all about it's about you know finding solutions to doing things in a better way and so don't, don't be scared of that and apply that 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 innate sense of finding a solution to something and don't don't be scared of it i think also is there a myth or a, a sort of a presumption that you're the cto so for those who might not know are you sitting there coding no. because this is what and i think that this still is a, a sort of theory that mm. to take control of tech but actually you're the the mastermind you're the mm. you you're visualizing what that solution is to a problem and it can be that then you harness a team or outsource but you're in control of that design and that solution yes because i do feel that that might be one of the you know um the ways that we're held back as women to get into that because people women i feel believe that they need to be an expert before they even jump right in whereas men I've seen in time will jump in and have a go um what's your view on that is that is that what you Mm. you know what's your daily life like as a CTO yes I mean I think if you're the CTO of a you know small medium-sized company not not a startup because that's different as a CTO you could be the only person coding (laughs) Uh, and making the coffee um, exactly um but as you get in you know as a CTO you shouldn't really be doing that you should be it's more an architectural strategic thinking and you do need to build up a, a knowledge in tech so you need to understand you know the hosting environment and what's what's so that you can make decisions that are right for the business so there is uh, there is knowledge that you need to have but at CTO level you shouldn't really be you know delving into the code that's for that's the developers and it's all about managing the teams to make them the most efficient team and you know real high performance technical teams can produce amazing stuff so that's it's more the people management side, the recruitment, recruiting the right kind of skill sets for the team, making sure that they have really amazing processes in place and talking about things like agile and scrum. And, you know, you don't you don't need to do the whole thing, but you need to have some processes in and understanding where that's appropriate and where it's not. But yes, it's all about people management and it's about setting the vision and the architecture uh, and the strategy for the technology play within the business. Each week I sit down with a cup of tea and write my weekly Friday email, Holly's Desk Notes. I share everything I've been up to, thinking about or working on in the past week. I genuinely love it. And it's a real moment in my week when I stop, sit down and put pen to paper. 
You'll often find recommendations for my favourite small businesses and what they create, details of places or events I've been to or think you'd love, recent articles from our advice hub, the latest Holly Loves collections, or perhaps sharing what's been happening in my world outside of Holly & Co., Not only that, but by joining our email community, you'll be the first to hear about all the exciting updates throughout the year. Be that our shop independent campaigns, our tours across the country, and let's not forget the independent awards. If you'd love to hear our latest news, advice and inspiration, follow the link in the description below to join our newsletter community or head on over to holly.co where you can easily sign up. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. The digital world, obviously, is changing at such pace. Mm -hmm. And I know it can be very daunting, actually, for everybody, let alone small businesses trying to keep pace. New apps, new technology, new sales platforms, new social media outlets... I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. What advice would you give to dreamers or small businesses who don't feel that they're techie and yet they need to start controlling Mm. the world around them and, and actually start navigating what can be seen as something that's that again is quite daunting? So I think, you know, having an attitude to learning. So if there's a particular thing in your business that you're trying to solve, be that the hosting. So do you go Amazon? Do you go something else? How do you, you know, reading up and learning, but also building up your network of other businesses that are in the same kind of space and listening to them and what they're trialing is actually more beneficial than going to all these conferences because you'll be wowed by the latest technology, but you don't need to jump on the bandwagon. And this is why, you know, I love uh, companies like Not on the High Street is that they've got this network of people who are making things and a lot of them are in the same place and they're dealing with you know how do I get my goods in transportation postage you know all that packaging all these things that you that you worry about are you getting it right if you can have a network that supports everybody within the network and you can share knowledge that is infinitely more valuable I reach out to other CTOs even the CTOs of competitive businesses and we share ideas and so if you've got a peer a set of peers who you can go to who will support you and you can support them with what you're learning I think that's the most important thing and do you believe that in when you look at technology today, where you can start up a website today, we can start transactioning tomorrow, mm-hmm. do you believe that technology needs to have USP as much as, let's say, you're creating a product and I would say, you know, <clears> what's <throat> the difference of this chair, table, painting, et cetera, et cetera? Do you believe technology is the same? I think that no, you need to differentiate yourself in other ways. Absolutely. If you, you know, if you're a startup now, use all the tools out there. Unless you're a specific technology business or mm-hmm. a software business where your core product is your software mm-hmm. and that is what you are selling, mm-hmm. I think you know, use all the incredible tools out there to to get you up and running. They call it the MVP, right? The minimum viable product 
And then what is your point of difference? How does your product stand out from the rest? I think that's the cr critical thing. And in this age where technology is becoming this ubiquitous and unstoppable and everything's going automated, it's actually the human, the creativity in what you do that will set you apart from everybody else. And, and talking about that creativity, it was interesting is that you started your brand with this physical book. Did it sell over 100,000 copies? Mm, the, the first book, yes. Yeah. 5,000, he thought. Who would have I know, thought? Oh, how I brilliant. Know, but know. you quickly turned your business into this online commission-based curated service where you can book a holiday through. However, looking back, I don't think you almost could have created such a strong brand or a fan base if you hadn't of created that physical, tangible, beautiful book uh, where the photography, tone of voice, and as mm. you said, the paper <clears throat> choice, all these details were there. And so many businesses are starting out without those touch points, you know, launching purely online. And we've lost that sort of interaction with customers. What do you think? How important it was? is that book now still to your business? So, I mean, the book's... In the beginning, the book was our business and we had to, you know, make money from it that way. And of course, that physical manifestation of the brand it was critically important, I think. It was a physical product in somebody's hands so they could tell the quality of what we were trying to do simply by touching the paper and the weight of the book and the, the fact that, you know, there, there was photography in there and the fact we wanted to speak to them because we put a membership card in the front of the book. All of that, you know, combined, created a brand in, and, a t and a human connection. And I do feel sorry for businesses starting up now because it is so hard to get that human connection in a pure digital market. And, and that's one of the reasons we've gotten back into print. So Tell me about that. So in October, um, so three months ago, we launched a, uh, a new guidebook. Uh, well, it's not a guidebook. It's a coffee table book called The World's Sexiest Bedrooms. And it, it has moved on from the old guidebook. So it's definitely not, you know, it's not meant to be a guidebook. It's supposed to be a piece of inspiration. It's a thing of, of beauty. I, I love it. I can say that because I had very little to do with it. It was all my husband. He, you know, he really is that manifestation of the brand and physically that's what he does so incredibly well and I'm so proud of him and it's it's a beautiful thing you know on sale now <laughs> <laughs> on sale now and who would have thought that you've gone back yeah it's full circle. Yes. It's full circle. But also rethinking the photography in it is kind of very cheeky and irreverent and the cover's kind of this lovely silk cover. So it's 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 moving things on again. Mm -hmm. And it's so lovely for, for me to have this this physical thing to give to people. Uh, and already our customers are saying, you know, when they, they phone the teams here um, in the office and they say, oh, I got the book and it's inspired me to, you know, to come back to you. And mm. it's, it's amazing. And it really has made a connection between us and our members again, which is lovely. And just touching on the fact that you speak so beautifully about your husband, in those vintage car rides, dreaming up, 
you know, you <laughs> fell in love, right? And yeah. you got married and through yes. your business, Mr. Uh-huh. and Mrs. Smith, <clears throat> you shared more than just your love for each other, but you created yeah. something um, together. It's, it's very, very beautiful. And just, yeah, so you, like, you know, think times have been tough as well. And, oh, yes. And it's hard working with someone 24-7 <laughs> uh, living. Yeah. Um, I'm glad we're putting the reality here. There is a reality that, to it. Yeah. The, you know, there are times when... We just don't want to talk about work anymore. And, you know, do you just sit in silence going, oh, my God, (laughs) because it can be overwhelming. But it means we share in the highs and the lows. So it it can get tough and it can be incredible as well. And now we're sharing the travel experiences with our kids as well, which also has its highs and its lows. (laughs) Like any mother like would, anyone, yes, <laughs> would, would testify, as, you know, yeah, as I know. Um, what advice or um, inspiration could you give when, when you think about creating brand and what brand means to you? And I know you're, you you give that credit to your husband, mm, but it's I'm very sure. Much his but I'm sure you know, that's one of the conversations. How have you managed to sort of create that invisible thread that's run for so many years now? So I think when, and this is what he would say, I would hope, that, you know, sticking to our core values, our core values haven't changed that much over the years. It's, you know, it's about that trust. We were all about the curation. So we would never work with a hotel that we didn't think was good enough. Customer trust is is hugely important to us. We do want to be cheeky and irreverent with the brand. I think Mr. and Mrs. Smith gives us um, license to do that. And so placing a real importance on the the written word and how we we talk to people. The editorial that our team come up with, you know, they're just amazing. Um, How they they hit that tone of voice and um, and make it cheeky. But at the the same time deeply professional because when you're talk when you're organizing somebody's honeymoon you know possibly the most expensive uh travel holiday they'll ever take and so important you don't mess it up you know you really don't and so all of those those those, those true brand values stick with us and yet we do need to evolve so keeping it fresh and talking to people about new things that we're doing from, you know, enhancing our products and also really differentiating ourselves on service and how we really serve our customers, our members, when they when they book through us is, is what we really focus on, making sure that we deliver. And so when you talk about brand, when I look at brands out there that I connect with as a human, they're brands that have that have not been manufactured, mm-hmm. but brands that have come from a, a, a place of uh, of heart, of truth, of of experience from someone. Those are the ones that yeah. I connect with because they have depth. Yeah, yeah. And 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 Mr. and Mrs. Smith has always had that. Uh, my experience, I think, is. A- is it's been about all those thoughtful details. Recently, actually, I know you know that I booked a holiday through you. And when I arrived, it was just, I've told absolutely everyone about this. I received an email that really made me laugh because I don't know if it was 
that clever that they knew I'd actually, well, they knew I was arriving on that day. But I looked at my phone and there was an email from Miss Smith Smith. It was basically saying, we know that your bed right now is full of open suitcases and all you want is a G&T. So we just want to not interrupt that, but we know in the first few hours, if something's going to go wrong or you don't like something, it's right now that you want to tell someone, we're here 24 hours a day, just pick up the phone. And I just, I've got shivers even saying that to you Aww. because I love customer experience like that. Mm-hmm. It is rare. It is rare these days. It's, it's something that not on the high street that we were obsessed about. It's that old fashioned customer service mm. served through technology. It was that empathy. Oh, thank you. Well, no, I just, it was brilliant. (laughs) Being Mrs. Holiday Queen, I have to ask, your favourite hotel you stayed in or or experience? Holly, asking me for a favourite is like asking me to choose a favourite child. (laughs) It's impossible. I'm sorry, if someone asked me what my favourite partner was, I don't know what I would say (laughs) either. Yeah, you're right, you're right. But have you had experience? I I can imagine you pick such incredible places and and people and, you know, what have been some experiences that has stood out? If I think about... The book and the world's sexiest bedrooms nowadays, if you, you look at the, the places in there, they, they really stand out. And the reason we chose the hotels and the bedrooms in there is because they have something that is wow or special. So the, it, can, it could be just, you know, this hot tub on a terrace with incredible views like the tree houses at Tewton Glen, or it could be the fact that the entire hotel is only one bedroom like the Koki Koki in Mexico. And so you really have the hotel to yourself, but it is a full service hotel and you've got this private little courtyard and this beautiful wrought iron uh, four poster bed and it just feels like everything is just for you so and there's nothing more special than that on the front cover of the book is uh, one of my favorites Ushua Casa in in Brazil oh gosh I mean one of my favorites for so many reasons the location is phenomenal Trancoso in Bahia is this beautiful town they have a, an open communal space uh, grassy where the kids come out and play football in the evenings no cars allowed a church at the end, stunning beach at the bottom. And the owner, who was in the fashion industry, vowed that he never wanted to, again, design a piece of clothing. So he turned his creativity to the fixtures and fittings. But it's it's special as well because it goes above and beyond in terms of sustainability. And that's something that's becoming more and more important Mm. to me. So this is a hotel where they have actually set up an NGO, non-government organisation, to lobby government to help improve sustainable tourism to the area. These are the hotels that inspire me and get me out of bed every Mm. morning, just like you with the partners. Mm. When you find a partner that is doing something out of the ordinary, Mm. special, who really cares and is unique Mm. Mm. it's super exciting and you want to shout about them from the rafters Uh, and that was always what Mr and Mrs Smith was about about sharing and inspiring these people you know people to go away to to these incredible places gosh I want to be right there wherever you yeah (laughs) where you've just described and I also heard you say about is it right there was a a place where you described where they gave you a little hammer is this right yes yes Fogo Island 
for so the island that, then? In, so, in Canada. Yes. Newfoundland. So they are on an island off Newfoundland and they get passing icebergs, huge things. And the, the, the hotel has a little hammer that you can take out and, and, and chip off a little bit of ice and that, that goes into your cocktail. I just, I mean, I wow. Mean, I, I mean, wow. I'd love to talk to you, actually, just we touched on partners and about curation, as I don't often get this opportunity to speak to someone who has that as a founding principle. Mm. There's not many, many of us, actually. As you know, Not in the High Street was highly curated when we started. We turned away and still do roughly 90% of applicants, allowing the best 10% of those that we feel will do well on the platform onto the site. And it was our curation, our eye that created that brand. And people said we were crazy turning away business because we were eating baked beans and couldn't afford the mortgage. But um, (laughs) we did. And we knew that this was building trust. We knew that this was the foundation building the brand, that eye on quality and design. You you have about uh, 950 hotels on it's, your... It's actually 1,200 now. 1,000, right. And we've got villas now we have as well, and experiences is our new thing, but all very highly curated. And all highly curated. They've mm-hmm. passed your test mm-hmm. on what it takes to come on. So... In terms of how you grow and how you started, curation, is it hard to stay true to it? I think because we're still very much in the business, James and I, you know, curation will always be our mantra and and we train the teams. And now, you know, I'd love to say we get it right 100% of the time. We don't. We, you know, we strive to, though. We strive only to work with the best of the best. But it's about how you train people to go out there and curate because obviously James and I can't get around the world all the time uh, now even though I wish I could so we've got three teams and we we train them and James and I train them personally we've got a video training program as well to how to select a, a property and it goes down to you know all the customer touch points so when somebody walks into a hotel how they're greeted what the smell is can you smell the kitchens or can you smell a lovely scented candle can you find a little corner what's the lighting like is it pumping house music and is that appropriate for the time of day and it's all about the mood and then when you go to the bedroom we always say my my one thing I say to them is when you walk through that door you need to feel like you want to jump on the bed and it's that feeling and it's not about you know it's it's, it's that what experience. Takes over. It, yeah. yeah, it's an almost uh, raw sensation of excitement that I want all of our members to feel when they walk into a Mr. and Mrs. Smith hotel bedroom. That wow, this is ours for the holiday or the weekend, and you feel that excitement. Mm, yeah. And so that curation process is is still very much for us sacrosanct and how we train our curators. And, and the future going forward, automation, you know, you have more competition than ever. Airbnb, Travago, Booking.com. When you look at the future, is curation actually something that, um, you know, you started a while ago, but actually is now coming into its own? Yes, and I, I, you know, we've been through phases with the, with the business. So <clears throat> when we started, we were all about finding these places. So we were the ones bringing these hotels to light because nobody had heard about them and they didn't have a platform. Now, of course, they're everywhere. And 
then we went through a terrible phase of people, especially in the UK, uh, Londoners taking over mum and dad's old property or buying a rundown B&B, uh, slapping Farrow and Ball over the walls, <laughs> putting a jug of apples in reception and, and calling it a boutique hotel. So there was a lot of style over substance. Then we've moved away from that now, I, I feel, and really hit our curation heartland. I think it's ever more important for people to cut through all the the information they have on the internet. I mean, there are, there are studies done every year on how many websites people visit before they make a, a travel choice. And it's, you know, it's in the 30s, 40s every year. And it, that's terrible. And so what we aim to do is just cut down the amount mm -hmm. of choice and get to get the hotel address right first time. And so I think curation is ever more important in people's busy mm. lives. Mm. I'd love to talk to you about raising money because I believe that you've now raised money through crowdfunding. And that's so interesting for those listening. But you raised £6 million, is that right, through crowdfunding? Yes. What was that experience like? So, yes, we did that in September last year, 2018, and it was an incredible experience. I think, you know, that affirmation of people wanting to invest in the company, even after 15 years, was a, a, an incredible feeling and, you know, just made me realise how lucky we are to have a brand that people love. It was a lot of hard work, don't get me wrong, it was an, and it was so very it's not, intense. it's not an easy fix, it's not easy. It's, yeah. it's we, and I think what happened was we were, we were so scared of it failing because it is so public. Yes. When you do something like this. Yes. And we were so scared that we threw everything at it. I mean, James and I and our other partner, Ed, we were all involved on a day-to-day -day basis. We, the whole PR team, the marketing team were behind it. You know, we, we literally put our heart and soul into it. And so it was a lot of hard work and took up a lot of company resources. But boy, was it worth it. We'd set our stall out to raise one million. And we hit the first million in the first day. Uh, and it just kept going um, all the way to six million. It was a very exhilarating time. I didn't sleep very much. <laughs> and it was and it also was very intense because, you know, you are only crowdfunding for a number of weeks. And you talk about working hard and, and, and you didn't sleep, but you're a mum. Right. Mm. And so I know you've spoken about Mr. and Mrs. Smith, like your third child. Mm. And that's always what I say about not on the high street. It was my second baby and Holly and Co is my third. You've worked with your husband for now over 15 years and you've got two kids. Talk to me about how you manage that and how how have you done that? So obviously having an infrastructure helps. So people to help. But it is it and is in definitely those early days imperfect. You didn't have infrastructure, right? <clears throat> no. No, no. I mean, um, my firstborn, uh, Tom, when he when he was born, I maybe naively thought I could just work through. <laughs> and so I, I didn't stop my emails. So I was breastfeeding and on my phone and it was exhausting. I went back to work very early and it was hard. It was really hard, exhausting. So as, they, as they're older, 
uh, you know, you, you do come to terms mm. with it, mm. but you feel guilty all the time. Mm. Um, and the analogy, I don't usually like analogies, but the analogy of a business being like your third child is actually quite a good one because there's something that you have created and I want to see it do well. I want to see it through its teenage years into uh, adulthood. And I want to be there on my rocking chair going, I created that. It very much is, you know, something that we, both James and I, care very deeply about. And so when we're away from the business, we feel guilty that we're not spending enough time with it. And of course, when we're we're in the business, I feel terribly guilty about not spending enough time with the children. And especially in those early years where they weren't at school, I have the most amazing nanny in the world. And, you know, our lives just wouldn't work without it. And I'm fortunate enough to be able to have one. But she would be off doing exciting things with the children during the day and sending me photos. And every photo would be like a stab to the heart because I felt I should Mm -hmm. be doing that. Mm -hmm. And yet I could see that they were happy. Mm. And that allowed the freedom for me to concentrate on work as well. And I, I do believe, you know, in bringing that work ethic back. They see me as a working mum. But it's tough, you know, it is, it's really tough. Mm. Uh, you know, many days, you know, even with the infrastructure, things just go horribly wrong. <laughs> and it's just a, that life is a mess and you just have to go, do you know what? I need to leave the office right now because, <laughs> you know, something's going X, on. X, Y and Z is happening. Yeah. And it wasn't planned this and way. Th- and there are so many, you know, I do some speaking engagements or meetings where, I, you know, I wish I'd had time to just paint my nails. Mm. And I just don't. Mm. Um, and you just have to live with that and get on with it. And so I always feel like underneath I'm kind of paddling fiercely and it may look as if everything's in control on top but it never is and there are some days where everything goes beautifully and of course you go and you know you live for those days yeah you live may there be many of them (laughs) Tamara this has just been fantastic to speak to a strong woman who has gone for it you know you've trained yourself in areas that women do not feel as empowered to go into the world of tech you risked it you built a brand where you've kept it strong from day one to today you have found a titus i can tell you're you're in on the detail and you and you're giving you know after 15 years sitting across you you're full of energy and oh, love for this you. business and it's just such an honor to have heard your story firsthand we end this interview mm. where i ask about as we know running these ships does not necessarily go to plan and it is very much up and down and i i use the analogy actually that it's a crazy roller coaster and i'd love to ask what you think has been your biggest high on this journey oh gosh it's so difficult isn't it because there are so many highs and as time goes by the highs that you had in the early days kind of diminish with the next big one Uh, so I'd like to point out an early one that uh, sometimes I forget about and it was when that first book came out and Waterstones rang us up and told us that we'd been super tiered which meant that every single store across the country had had to have at least two or three books in stock at any time and that we had outsold Harry Potter on one day in one store (laughs) and that was it (laughs) but it was one of those moments where we go wow and so it was a moment you know we realized we'd hit something and then more recently I think we've touched on it the crowdfunding getting to that one million in that first day and that validation 
it was, you know, a huge sigh of relief that it was going to, we knew then it was going to go well, but also all these people were investing in us as a business 15 years on. And that affirmation of, of members who love the brand was, was a real high. Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. And your low, what would you pick as? I mean, not that you've had many. So the highs, the highs come with people. So it's all about the members. But it's also, uh, you know, the team in here, you know, I get a real buzz out of seeing the members of the team, especially young girls as well, come through the ranks. And so a low point would be the kind of antithesis to that when we shut down the Australian office and we had to lose and let go, you know, some really good people there. I think that was that was a really tough time when we realized we'd got it wrong and mm-hmm. and, and had to you know let and go it wasn't some good their people. fault it wasn't their fault at all and um and yeah some really great people we had to let go and so that was a tough time and something that I've started to ask on this podcast is could you recommend a future guest for me to talk to someone who would maybe inspire our listeners, but inspires you. Can I mention several? Because yes. there are so yes. many people that I that out there that um, I love and think would be would be great. So some people in my network who have really are doing extraordinary things in their own fields. Uh, so there's Emma Sinclair who runs a technology business. But her story about how she started her first business is fascinating. Sarah Wood from Unruly, I think, is fantastic. What she's done and her story of motherhood and trying to fit the business with the children as well is is, is really interesting. And then also uh, recently somebody called Brian McBride has come and he's just recently stepped down as chairman of ASOS, but he was... Uh, CEO of Amazon in the UK and and has seen the digital transformation in retail I think like you know very few people have uh, and so I think he'd be fascinating gosh there are so many people I could go on and on and on oh wow thank you and I'm going to finally hand over to you as you know you've written a letter to your younger self I've not read it um it's one of my favorite parts in the podcast but tomorrow I just wanted to before you start thank you again for the interview today and for sharing a part of your soul thank you holly okay here goes dear tamara i'm sorry to disturb you i know you're busy and that the last thing you want to hear is a lecture and you've never been especially good at listening to anyone including yourself so let me promise you a couple of things before we start i'm not going to tell you to live your life to the full i'm not going to tell you to seize every opportunity or make the most of every day because you know all that stuff and hearing it again won't make any difference In any case, all those carpe diem homilies don't hit home until you get older and understand exactly what time does when things like death and fragility really start to mean something. And right now for you, they don't. You're there in a frozen moment, on the threshold of forever, anything possible and everything in your grasp. I remember being there. I know how scary it is and how exhilarating. If I were you, and I was, I wouldn't listen to me either. But don't worry, I'm not going to warn you off doing anything or tell you you're making bad decisions. You're going to make mistakes, a lot of them to be fair, but each one is important in its own way. We're all the products of the things we do wrong, possibly even more so than the things that go right. Mistakes are how we truly learn. Everything else is just remembering stuff. So please go ahead and make your blunders. They'll really help me out later. That also means that you need to ease up on that perfectionist streak of yours, otherwise it's going to slow you down a bit. You need to learn that it's okay to be a bit ragged around the edges, 
that there's no such thing as an unqualified success, that no project will ever be quite as good at the end as you imagined it could be at the beginning, and it doesn't make it a failure. If you stop spending so much time and mental energy trying to get everything perfect, you'll stand a much better chance of getting it right. To save you a lot of time and angst, here's a secret it took me decades to understand. It doesn't matter that you currently have no idea where you're headed. Not many people do. Yes, life might be a journey, but if you stop fixating on the destination, you'll enjoy it a lot more. Open yourself up to a little chaos, allow yourself to go with the flow, and you'll find yourself in all sorts of interesting places. I know you love learning, and I know that will never leave you. But try to learn one new skill each year, and do try to stick with what you've learnt. If you're going to be lucky enough to be taught how to fly, maybe don't give it up when you leave university. Just a suggestion. You're right to believe that your friends and family are important, and they'll only become more so in times to come. Treasure them, go the extra mile for them whenever you can. Even the smallest gesture of kindness pays dividends. Little moments of goodwill that will ripple across the years. The people you surround yourself with, personally and professionally, will be enormously important to you in the long run. So cultivate your circle now. You'll need its support in the future. Find people you admire from all walks of life and reach out to them. Support them whenever they reach out to you. It's really very simple, but it can help get you through almost anything that life throws at you. The good thing is that right now you're pretty fearless. So stop trying to work out who you should be. In the long run, it's much easier to be just who you are, and that's something you can do without even thinking about it. So don't stress. You worry too much as it is, but you don't listen enough. It's a bit of a contradiction, isn't it? You're anxious to improve yourself, but you're too fiercely independent to seek the feedback that might help you to do that. You can't sit around waiting for the world to tell you what to do or how to do it better. As much as you hate it, you have to have the humility to ask for help, advice, and opinions when you need them. So, I was wondering if I could have yours. There are some things I've forgotten that I think you can teach me. You see, I've noticed a pattern with entrepreneurial people. They start businesses, grow them, sell them, and then, well, they do the same thing all over again, because sometimes they've forgotten how to do anything else. They put so much of themselves into making it work that it's almost as though they don't have much of themselves left when it's gone. And I'm scared that will happen to me. I need reminding who I am when I'm not Mrs. Smith. And you're the only person I can think of who really knows. So tell me about yourself. What are your hobbies and interests? What is it that you think about when you're not working or worrying or trying to improve yourself? Who is it that you plan to become? Before I go, I want to set your mind at rest about something. I've got a feeling that right now you're concerned about being stuck in the same place and never getting to see the world. Let me tell you right now, you needn't worry on that score. If there's one thing that defines your future, it's travel, and you're going to love it. Oh, I'm a bit, <laughs> I'm a bit shaky. Gosh, that was really... Sorry. <laughs> really, really beautiful. Oh, thank you. I've really... Oh, dear. Oh, gosh. I'm actually shaking. Well, it's just because you've taken it to that point where... You're reminding yourself of who you are outside of your business 
but yet your business is who you are. Mm, and it's, it's a, difficult a very difficult, me. yes. And I, I live it every day and it's really resonated with me. And so thank you so much for so eloquently describing that position with us all. And I know so many people will empathise with it. So thank you so much, thank Tamara. You. Thank, thank you, you. Thank you. <laughs> If you found my conversation with Tamara Lohan inspiring, you might also enjoy my episode with Joe Malone. Search Conversations of Inspiration wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed listening, if it's helped or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support really does mean the world to me. It helps spread the word and will inspire more people to build a life they love. And for all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.